This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Turn, if you would, to 2 John. 2 John, or as our brothers and sisters in Christ in the UK and Australia would say, to John. But don't ever correct your theology professor. It's a story for another time. 2 John. Three times in the New Testament, the writers use the imagery of a race to describe the Christian life. Now, the word they use specifically is the word that was used for the ancient Greek marathon. Christian life is a marathon. Now, when we say that, we think of the images that come up on our screen, particularly during the Olympics, of that marathon, you know, where the, the, uh, the course is roped off for you, and you've got these people handing you drinks and food along the way. That's a sanitized version of a marathon. A Christian life is more like a marathon, an ultra marathon, a 50 miler through the Rocky Mountains where you face the threat of, I don't know, altitude sickness, extreme weather conditions, wild animals. And let's put uh, a happy little band of rogue bandits in our painting. That's the Christian life. The Apostle John writes to a group of Christians engaged in this ultramarathon through the Rocky Mountains, and he addresses, of all the threats they face, he addresses just one. That's the threat of false teaching. This is John, one of the twelve, in fact, one of the three who are part of Jesus' inner circle, who is addressing just one of the many challenges we face in this ultramarathon through the Rocky Mountains, the threat of false teaching. Now you might say, well, how can false teaching threaten a Christian's running of this race? That's not a big deal, is it? Well, John, who wrote this letter that we'll look at today, would strongly contend that what you believe matters to God. What you think about various topics matters to God. What you do with your mind matters to God because he made it. And he wants it to work in a certain way. Perhaps the most famous passage we could point to, indicating to us that God cares about what you believe, is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So in the context, this is precisely the action that Jesus is looking for Nicodemus to take, to believe, and you will be saved. Contrarily, in John's first epistle, he writes, but who is the liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. So, believing... This, that Jesus is not the Christ, is actually, actually warrants the label <laughs> Antichrist. 
He who denies the Father and the Son. Now, in our cultural climate, uh, our cultural climate tends to elevate observable behavior above invisible thinking. In other words, what you do with your body in public to or for others, that's what matters most. But private stuff doesn't matter. Your hidden thoughts, your private thoughts are of little consequence. Unless those hidden thoughts become public behavior. Only then can it be critiqued. But your private life is your private life and it's nobody else's concern. That's what we've been told for years and years. But that is not what the New Testament teaches. What you believe with your mind is every bit as important as what you do with your body. How else would you be able to answer Jesus' question to the disciples in Matthew 16? Who do you say that I am? So John writes this short letter to provide this church with tactics, with tactics for finishing the ultramarathon in the face of threats posed by false teaching. That's the point of this short little letter. Let me read it. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who, fall, who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For, why are we doing all this? John is saying, why are we doing all this? Why am I telling you to do all this? For, here's why, many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Three tactics in our ultra marathon. Three tactics to employ in our ultra marathon as we face the threat of false teaching specifically. Here they are. Walk in truth. Love one another. Exercise discernment. Walk in truth. Love one another. Exercise discernment. First, walk in truth. You see in the first two verses, the elder, this is John's way of referring to himself, to the elect lady, the church, and her children, Potentially those that this church has reached for Christ, raised up, 
whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Verse four, I rejoiced greatly to find that some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. Thirteen short verses this book has, this letter has. And John used the word truth five times. And in verse four, it's particularly strong. This church walking in truth provides John with great joy. Walking in truth is an interesting way to say it. <laughs> when you think about modern-day vernacular language, when do you ever say walk in something? Perhaps someone else's shoes? I doubt that's an idiom they had in the first century. Normally, when we're using this, we're, we're walk on. It's walk on. It's not walk in. It's walk on. Walk, walk on the path. Walk on the carpet. Walk on the track. Don't walk on the floor. Don't walk on the grass. Stop walking on your sister. <laughs> it's walk on. John uses walk in and does quite often actually throughout his, the totality of his works. It's walk in, walk in, walk in. When I was a young boy living in northern Minnesota, my dad and I would drive out to the vast forests of that part of the state, the country, and we would cut down our balsam fir for Christmas. It was not unusual at around Thanksgiving to have snow on the ground up there. And on this particular year, we had had a big snowfall, I think over a foot fallen. And uh, we were traipsing our way out there, but my four-year-old stature was having a very difficult time getting through this winter wonderland. And so I, I told my dad, I'm having a hard time here. Dad, slow down. And he said to me, walk in my footsteps. Walk in my footsteps. My reply was, can you take smaller steps? <laughs> it's helpful imagery. To walk in truth is to do the day-to-day inside previously established channels carved out by those who have gone before us. Maybe the image of walking in wartime trenches is helpful. Stay in those. They were dug out for you. They've been there for a long time. Walk in those. They're well-worn, well-established, withstanding the test of time. As a quick aside, and not that you have time for this, but this is one of the reasons why Christian Bible teachers and pastors need to make it a part of their routine to study what we call historical theology. It's simply thinking of it this way. We're not the only Christians to have lived. Yes? (laughs) There were Christians a hundred years ago. There were Christians a thousand years ago. Question, what did they believe? What did they believe? What do they believe about 2 John? We're looking at 2 John. What do they think about 2 John? Next week, we're in 3 John. What do they think about 3 John? What do they think about this topic, that topic? Historical theology is a very important thing. Very important thing. It helps us find those trenches. Find those footprints. John has been around the block. One of only a few to have spent concentrated time with Jesus. And he doesn't want us venturing off the well-worn path of truth that he and the other apostles have dug out for us. 
this aberrant teaching that he was writing to address didn't remain in the truth. Personally speaking, when it comes to walking in the truth, I don't want something new. I want something old. But we are suckers for new, aren't we? Hmm? We suckers, we are suckers for new. And I think that was John's concern. He knew that about us. Don Carson, reflecting on this, says the love of novelty combined with admiration for piety easily breeds an irresponsible tolerance for theological rubbish. The love of novelty combined with an admiration for piety easily breeds an irresponsible tolerance for theological rubbish. We are suckers for novelty. Now, there's a sense in which novel is good. Think about the seasons. I've lost track of how many of you appreciate the changing of them. I appreciate it in one direction, not another. My sister, who's also a Midwesterner, lived in Jacksonville, Florida for a bit. I asked her, what's it like? (laughs) The first year, she loved it. The second year, not so much. She said, you get one season, and that's it. It gets old. There's something about novelty that we can appreciate. And when novelty reminds us of, I don't know, the new creation that God has made us to be, or the new creation that awaits us, it's great. There's something wholesome about it. Something wholesome about it that when it directs our spiritual imaginations in a God-honoring direction. But there is also something sinister about novelty. In Screwtape Letters, the senior demon Screwtape writes to his nephew, a junior demon named Wormwood, to instruct him how, how to undermine the work of God in your life. At one point he writes, Now, just as we pick out and exaggerate the pleasure of eating to produce gluttony, So we pick out this natural pleasantness of change and twist it into a demand for absolute novelty. The pleasure of novelty is by its very nature more subject than any other to the law of diminishing returns. And continued novelty costs money. So the desire for it spells avarice or unhappiness or both. And again, the more rapacious this desire, the sooner it must eat up all the innocent sources of pleasure and pass on to those the enemy forbids. In other words, Wormwood, get them addicted to novelty. The next new big thing, get them addicted to it. Eventually, you'll lure them out of their well-worn, well-established trenches of truth where they will be exposed and vulnerable to a litany of ideas and ideologies that can successfully lead them astray. Mm. The love of novelty combined with admiration for piety easily breeds an irresponsible tolerance for theological rubbish. John's first tactic for these Christians facing the threat of false teaching is simply to stay put in the trenches of the old. And we do our best here to help with that. 
As a point of practical application, I want to plug again what Pastor Duane has cooking in his theological kitchen. CrossFit, Sundays, 9 a.m., Student Ministry Center, for middle school, high school students and their parents. Seven-year doctrinal track. He will not be giving you something new, but something old. Now, question you might have in your mind is, how do I know if what's in front of me is authentic or counterfeit? Is it legit or is it bogus? I find it very interesting that while false teaching is a theme throughout the New Testament, the New Testament writers don't pontificate on that with any kind of detail or length. They don't take long to tell you what it is and explain all the points of it. They mention it. Maybe it's the thesis idea of this particular false teaching, but then they move away from it. They spend more time concentrated on giving you in detail sound theology, sound doctrine. It's interesting. I worked at a bank in college. I was a teller. My first two weeks, there were 80 hours of training Out of the 80 hours of training, I spent 15 minutes studying counterfeit bills. 15 minutes studying counterfeit bills. And I asked my supervisor, my trainer, why not more than 15 minutes? And she kind of chuckled. And she said, you will end up spending hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours handling the real thing. To the point that when a fake one comes across your desk, you're going to know. That's the point. The more you spend hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours handling the real thing, when a fake one comes across your nose, it's not going to smell right. You may not know why exactly, but it's not going to smell right. There's going to be something about it that's off. Notice that. Notice that. That's off. Why is that off? First tactic to employ. If we're going to win our full reward at the end, if we're going to withstand this threat that we face in our ultra marathon through the Rockies, the false teaching is to walk in truth. Second, Love one another. Verse 5, And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Now, you might be asking yourself, how is it, Pastor, you're seeing walking in truth and loving one another as tactics to employ in the battle against false teachers and false teaching. Well, just quickly look at verse 7. You see this word for. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Everything else before that are subordinate clauses that lead up to this main idea. This is why I want you to walk in truth. This is why I want you to love one another. For this is what you're faced with. This is the threat to you. Verses 7 and 8 are the central concern of the letter. False teaching upending this church's ultramarathon through the Rocky Mountains. The word for gives us the reason why. John is essentially saying the best defense is a good offense. 
An uncompromising adherence to biblical truth and unwavering love for one another is the best defense against the real threat of false teaching. So the first tactic dealing with false teaching is walk in truth. Second is love one another. This is a very interesting tactic John would choose to employ. It's easy to see why John would want to tightly screw down our commitment to walking in truth if the threat is false teaching. That's easy to see. But when confronted with false teaching, why would he strongly advocate love for one another? What's the connection? What if John is saying something about how God has wired us up? What if John is saying, isolation makes you vulnerable to false teaching? You've all watched nature shows on TV. I grew up watching Marty Stauffer's Wild America on PBS. Wild America, Marty Stauffer, come on. Marty Stauffer, come on, let's see it. Let's see it. We're my homies here, Marty Stauffer. Yes, the end of the introduction where the rams collide. I don't know which nature show I was watching on this particular instance, but there was a herd of 100 water buffalo and six lions. This is where the ratings are made, right? Making these shows, this is where the ratings are made. Uh, the lions were plotting to have buffalo for dinner, and they found one that had strayed from the herd, maybe a couple hundred yards, and they went after that buffalo. You notice they don't go after an entire herd of a hundred buffalo. They know better. They've got to figure out how to get one that's strayed. Hmm? They chased this one lonely, isolated buffalo, and you know how six lions take down a buffalo. One grabs one rear leg, the other grabs the other rear leg, another one hops on the back, and then we'll just leave it there. Here's what was interesting. There were a hundred buffalo standing and staring and watching this go down. I don't know if buffalo can think, but if buffalo could think, you know what they're thinking? Boy, am I ever glad that's not me. (laughs) Imagine if this herd had decided, you know what? We're not going to let this happen. We're not going to let them get away with it. And together, as a hundred buffalo, they come thundering after these lions. Well, they would have scurried away. John and the other New Testament writers make the case that just me and Jesus will never work. Listen, when Satan wants to get to you, he first separates you from your Christian friends. Once you're isolated from the herd, you're a sitting duck, if I can mix my metaphors. A tightly knit community bound together in love is the best defense against the threat of false teaching that pretends to upend the successful completion of our ultramarathon. 
I have no empirical evidence to support this, but I have watched, my wife and I have watched over the last six months, some friends of ours from a bygone era join what we have considered to be, looks like, a cult. We went to church for years and years and years together. So I have no evidence, no empirical evidence, but anecdotally, I would say it's been my observation that those who have fallen into the lure of false teaching are those who first wandered from their church community. The more you are here, the less likely that's to happen to you. The more you are connected in meaningful Christian fellowship, the less likely that is to happen to you. Now, there's something else to notice in John's exhortation to love one another. He defines it for you. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. In John's gospel, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Christian love belongs to the sphere of action more than emotion. Love for one another is not an involuntary passion, but selfless service. Obedience to the commands of Scripture is Jesus' definition of love. This is timely for a day and age like our own. Today, to love someone is to indulge them. To let them do what they want. Indulgence is not true love. We do not demonstrate love if we do something to or with another person that God forbids discouraging disobedience and encouraging obedience is the most loving thing you can do for another brother or sister in Christ. A loving church community is comprised of people who constantly point each other in the direction of God's ideal. That's what it means to love. Third tactic John gives us is to exercise discernment. Look at verses 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now, these verses have caused untold angst among Christians in regard to showing hospitality to non-Christians. I want to make sure we're clear on this. John is not talking about not showing hospitality to Non-Christian, personal friends, exchange students from another country or other face, international students at the local university you might be trying to reach out to, non-Christian family members. Not talking about that. John is envisioning here a challenge for the gathered church. When he writes, do not receive him into your home and do not exchange greetings with him, he has in mind aiding and abetting people who are undercutting apostolic teaching and leadership as represented by John. If we're reconstructing this, it it seems as though there were people seeking entrance into already established church circles to convince the unwary of new and different teaching about Christ and salvation. An analogy today would be the Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or other missionaries who seek to spread some quasi-Christian view. There is no call to be uncivil to them. 
be clear about that. But receive them in the sense of endorsing their teaching, giving them financial support, offering them personal encouragement. Makes no sense. When their teaching clearly rejects historic Christianity. In John's house church setting, to receive opponents of Christian belief into your home meant granting them and their doctrine the honor and respect that are due only to true Christian faith and practice. And John's point is that they stand for something else. And what they stand for calls for different treatment. And so he insists that flagrant opponents of the gospel who arise inside the church be graciously but firmly disbarred from normal involvement until they make a change. There are numerous implications of this. You mentioned just two. It's teachings like this that place responsibility on our pastors and elders to guard this pulpit Not just anybody is going to climb in here and start talking to you. We have a job to guard the gate. Second, outside of Sunday mornings, in the information age, this is exceedingly difficult to do. Do you realize that you have access to copious amounts of false teaching every day? YouTube and platforms like it are fine on one hand and a complete nightmare on another. This is where staying within the well-worn, well-established trenches of apostolic truth and in loving community with brothers and sisters in Christ is crucial. Listen, let me give you a point of advice on this. When you're hearing stuff online or you're reading stuff online or wherever, you're coming across a book that's gone viral and you're reading it and you're hearing some new stuff, Do not be an early adapter. Don't be an early adapter. In fact, don't commit to it without asking at least another dozen Christians this fantastic question about it. (laughs) What do you think about this? What do you think about this? If you come across a teaching you have not heard before, you ask a dozen other Christians, what do you think about this? Let me remind you, the stakes are high. John says, watch yourselves that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. The stakes are high. In 1879, Lieutenant George DeLong set out with a crew on the USS Jeanette in hopes of claiming the North Pole for the United States. Obviously, his plans were based on maps developed at that time. And at that time, there were numerous scientists, map makers, who believed there was an open polar ice-free sea teeming with marine life whose waters could be smoothly sailed as wonderfully as you might sail the Caribbean. Unfortunately, every previous expedition that sailed north in search of this supposed sea ran into a problem. Ice. Now, you might think 
that running into ice every time would lead scientists to abandon the theory of an open polar sea? Of course not. Instead, they modified the original theory by adding the idea of a thermometric gateway. That's a fancy way of saying ice. There's a book called In the Kingdom of Ice. The author writes, if an explorer could just bust through this icy circle, preferably in a ship with a reinforced hull, he would eventually find open water and enjoy smooth sailing to the North Pole. The trick then was to find a gap in the ice, a natural portal of some kind, a wormhole. Well, George DeLong and his crew of 28 men wanted to find that portal. But it didn't take long for them to realize that all the cartographers, all the scientists, all the geographers had been wrong. And he, DeLong, pronounced, said this, I pronounce a thermometric gateway to the North Pole a delusion and a snare. Eventually, DeLong began to doubt the existence of the open polar sea at all. He and his men encountered ice that seemed to stretch out forever. They eventually came to grips with the fact that they had been duped. The team had to, quote, replace their wrong-headed ideas with a reckoning of the way the Arctic truly is. They were running up against the rocks of hardened ice of reality. In September of 1879, the USS Jeanette got trapped in the ice pack, and his crew escaped and tried to go towards Siberia. They got separated. Some made it to Siberia and survived. Others continued their lonely trek through the ice. As for George Washington DeLong, he died in late October of 1881 of starvation. He was covered up by snow when they found him, except for one of his arms, which was raised as if to signal toward the sky. DeLong was duped by a bad map, and it had devastating consequences for him and his crew. Every life is lived according to some map. We face similar obstacles to DeLong, being duped by a bad map. Remain in the well-worn, well-established trenches of apostolic truth. Stay committed to the herd. Point each other in the direction of God's ideal. And don't ever be afraid to ask others, what do you think about this? Watch yourselves so you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Let's pray. God, we thank you for alerting us to this threat, one that we may not take seriously. I've witnessed it over the years, Lord. The enemy has a way. The enemy has a way. And so, Lord, we pray these truths into our body, our congregation, that we would be committed to staying in the well-worn, well-established trenches of apostolic truth. Lord, I pray that we would spend hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours handling the real thing, 
so that when the counterfeit comes across our faces, we may smell it as a fake. I pray that we would be committed to one another, that we would be committed to community, knowing that when Satan wants to get to us, he first separates us from our Christian friends. Guard us against that. And in so doing, God, we're positioning ourselves to be able to say to each other, to ask of each other, what do you think about this? Rather than trying to run this alone, God, I pray that you would see how you've created us to run it together. So, Lord, we want to acknowledge as we close what we believe. We will stand firm in it to the very end. To the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen.